Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. Thank you for joining today's education. Welcome and thank you for joining us today for our next episode of HPNA's Podcast Corner. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, Manager of Nursing Education for HPNA and a certified hospice and palliative care nurse. And I'm your co-host, Taylor Dolniak, HPNA's Multimedia Production Manager and longtime advocate for LGBTQ plus equality. Here with us today is Alex Kemery, a hospice and palliative care nurse and assistant professor of nursing at the University of Indianapolis. Alex will be sharing with us his perspectives and experiences on the challenges and opportunities in caring for patients within the LGBTQ plus community. Welcome, Alex, and please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me. Um, so as Taylor mentioned, uh, I'm Dr. Alex Kimmery. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Indianapolis. Um, I have been a nurse for, oh gosh, 12 or 13 years at this point um, and have earned my master's degree in nursing education as well as a PhD um, in nursing from the Catholic University of America. My dissertation uh, focus there was the end of life experiences of the LGBTQ community. Um, completing a study comparing the quality of end of life experiences um, for LGBTQ people with uh, non-LGBTQ people and seeing where the discrepancies and the disparities lie. Um, I'm also a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, I am out and openly bisexual, um, transgender man, um, and I'm in a a polyamorous relationship with three other transgender people. So I have quite... um, quite a variety of LGBTQ experiences to draw on, also parents and their son. Um, so I get the whole spectrum um, on you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, relationships, caring for youth, and um, I'm really just passionate about um, making sure that our LGBTQ older adults have the appropriate care that they need to have a um, high quality of life, especially at the end of life. Thank you, Alex, for for sharing that introduction and Taylor as well. So let's kind of kick this off with, Alex, what what are the challenges in providing palliative care that you see for LBGTQ people? I think that the challenges for my community um, in regards to hospice and palliative care are not really that different from the challenges that my community experiences accessing any kind of health care. Um, there is a long history of um, discrimination, of violence from healthcare providers, um, healthcare providers who have refused to um, treat LGBTQ patients. Um, there are some really well-known examples of that. And um, as you know, you see, if you follow the news, the current administration has tried to make it legal for healthcare providers to refuse to care for LGBTQ patients. Um, on the basis of religious objection. And so there's always that fear when you interact with a new healthcare provider or healthcare team um, that they either may treat you worse than they might somebody else or they may uh, outright refuse to care for you. Um, If you look back in um, fairly recent history, you know, the case of Robert Eads, I think in the early 2000s, um, was a transgender man who was refused um, treatment for I believe ovarian cancer by several doctors until he um, died from ovarian cancer that wasn't treated. Um, And that basis of refusal was because he was transgender. And so when we see things like this in the news and from healthcare providers, um, it doesn't make us 
really want to interact with the healthcare healthcare provider community any more than we have to. Um, and so I think that the biggest challenge is that patients are afraid. Um, if you look at you know, even some more recent stories, um, you guys are familiar with you know, Kim Aquaviva who wrote the book on LGBTQ inclusive hospice and palliative care um, and her wife, Kathy Brandt, who was a national expert on hospice and palliative care. Um, when Kathy was dying last year, um, they were very open about the fact that none of the um, hospice or palliative care providers in their area, I believe the hospice providers in their area, um, I don't wanna misspeak, none of the hospice providers in their area had a non-discrimination statement that included sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and so when people who are in the market or in need of hospice or palliative care are looking for those things and they don't see inclusiveness or welcomeness or, or feel welcomed um, by the providers in their community, they're not going to be willing to engage. So Alex, what do we do, not only as, as nurses, but as individuals to change that, to change that type of, of access and to change that that fear to become more open. What do we do? What do we do? Well, I think one of the first things that we have to do as healthcare providers is to engage in a lot of introspection and internal work. Um, because it is one thing for us to say, yes, we want to be open and welcoming and provide good care to everybody that we come across. But if we are not doing the work to educate ourselves and to um, take care of our you know, own biases, um, and stereotypes and, and other kind of negative emotions um, against people because of sexual orientation or gender identity, then we can create more harm, I think, than good. Um, and so it's one thing to say, I want to provide care for this community, but if you are not exploring and examining um, your own issues and relationship with the community, um, and instead just jumping in kind of both feet you know, at once into caring for LGBTQ people, then you can kind of inadvertently cause some damage, I think. Um, you have to go out there and educate yourself on the needs of the community, on um, the culture of the community. Um, you know, do some consulting with people who are LGBTQ, who, whose job it is to make sure that healthcare providers are knowledgeable about LGBTQ issues. And once you do that, and once you have done that work on the front end, you can then start to do some community outreach and try to make sure that your practice is um, a safe space for the community. Um, one of the first things you know that you can do is to make sure that your non-discrimination statement is inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity and gender presentation. But that's really just the first step. It's not something that you can check off your list and say, okay, we're inclusive now, uh, work done. Where are, all my, where are all my queer clients? How come they're not showing up? Um, you, know, you have to make sure that um, once you've done that basic policy level work that you continue to do community outreach, that you continue to make sure that everybody that you onboard is trained in how to be respectful with members of our community. Um, you need to make sure that the place where you work is safe for LGBTQ staff, because if it is not safe for LGBTQ staff, it's not going to be safe for LGBTQ patients. Um, the reality of the situation is that our community talks, and that if you are a provider who provides good care to our community, we will be passing your name, I mean, passing your name on left and right. It's anytime we find a good health care provider 
or a good office um, that treats us with respect and has their has their stuff in order, um, we pass that name around like wildfire. Um, but we also pass around the names of the people who aren't safe and the people who say that they are LGBTQ competent or LGBTQ friendly, um, but who don't treat us respectfully, whether that's uh, intentionally or inadvertently. So Alex, you, you talk about um, how you come from uh, an academia standpoint and the education side of things. I know that in, in my, my brief history of uh, talking to folks and that having them ask me those, I don't want to say intrusive questions, but those type of questions that build that safe space and just have them trying to understand more about the trans community and LGBTQ alike. Um, how do you, how do you navigate that type of area where you're talking to folks who don't really know that verbiage and their fear of messing up and, you know, cause there's always the, the terms that have become outdated or new terms that are no longer acceptable, et cetera. And I know it's hard to bridge that communication with both healthcare providers and people who are just trying to be better. Sure. And one of the things that I say is, you know, first, don't expect your patients to educate you. Your parent, your patients, your clients and families are not experts on LGBTQ health, they're experts on themselves. And so, you know, they can tell you what kind of care they want and who's important to them and what their goals are, but you need to at least have some kind of basis of understanding going in so that you're not expecting your patients to educate you um, because that kind of work does get exhausting. Um, there are, um, you know, some good resources out there. I know that Gleason is not really geared towards healthcare. It's actually geared through K through 12, to K through 12 education. Um, but there is some good basic resources on Gleason's website. So it's G-L-S-E-N. Um, they can get you some of that language um, and kind of start building that knowledge base. Um, you know, the other thing that I do for a lot of communities that I'm not a part of that I want to be, you know, to work to educate myself about so that I can um, be a good provider is I get out there and try to read as much as I can from the actual, you know, people in those communities with lived experiences. So, you know, do a lot of reading about healthcare experiences of LGBTQ people from LGBTQ on voices. Um, there are a couple of books out there, um, and I wish I had kind of brought those over to my desk before we started talking, but um, there are some books out there of essays um, by LGBTQ health activists that talk about their experiences. Those are good things to start reading. Um, one of the things that I do for other communities that I'm not a part of is I um, get on Twitter and make sure the people that I follow on Twitter are a diverse set of voices with experiences um, that aren't my own. And so I don't expect those people to provide me education, but I kind of sit and watch the things that they're talking about and use that as a way to find my own gaps and start piecing together what I need to do the work for and learn more about. The one thing that I know that's affected me personally, and obviously um, I'm grateful to not have had to look for end-of-life care in any way, um, but I know that, that this could only get monumentally more difficult when that that does arrive, um, is I know entering any sort of healthcare facility, you kind of feel the need to have to disclaim everything about you, um, and whether that's glaringly obvious or it's something as minor as sexuality that you feel is not you know, obvious when you walk into a room, how do you soothe those people who feel the need to either disclaim that 
um, due to healthcare issues, health issues happening directly related to your sexuality or your gender identity versus those who, um, you know, to use a, a term pass, you know, for those who pass and don't feel the need to have to walk into a room and scream, Hey, I'm transgender. And here are my health issues related to that. Um, I know that that's always been a difficult thing to say, you know, I'm going through this and I'm also, you know, taking testosterone or estrogen or I'm going through this and I'm, you know, in a same sex relationship because there's different health issues that come along with those identities. Um, that's true that there are some, you know, health issues that might come along with um, things like hormone replacement therapy. A lot of the health issues um, though that we see in the LGBTQ community are not really as a result of being LGBTQ. It's a result of the stress and the rejection and the issues that society puts on the LGBTQ people. So we have higher rates of poverty, higher rates of unemployment, uh, housing insecurity, things like that. That's not because we're LGBTQ, it's because society devalues us as LGBTQ people. And so that's one thing to kind of keep in mind um, as healthcare providers and as well, seeking healthcare um, is that there's no no diagnosis to, to my mind that's really tied to sexual orientation or identity. There are things that we need to be screened for because they might be more prevalent, but they're not necessarily directly caused by our sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, I um, let's see. I'm a big advocate for um screening or asking everybody on admission sexual orientation and gender identity to normalize that and to give people a space to come out if they want to i know really early um in before i had medically transitioned it was really important to me to be seen you know as a queer person um because i felt erased everywhere that i was and so i felt better you know being able to answer those questions as i've gotten further along in transitioning and you know you use the word pass and this is not my favorite term, but for lack of, you know, a kind of a better one, I am generally read um, as a cisgender man, albeit a kind of effeminate, um, probably gay one, um, when people see me. So I have to decide every time I interact with a healthcare provider or a new one, whether or not I want to disclose that I'm transgender. Um, and depending on what I'm seeing a healthcare provider for, I may or may not disclose that. Um, so yes, for me, I am on testosterone. However, if I'm going into the eye doctor, I don't disclose that I'm on testosterone on my, on my list of medications. For me, it's enough for me to say, well, my testosterone level, no matter how I'm getting it, is the same as a typical cisgender man's testosterone level. So that's not really important to you to know. Um, obviously, the person who writes my prescription for hormone replacement therapy knows that you know I'm on testosterone um, and the uh, primary care providers that I see also know, but that's only because they saw me before my transition and after. Um, and so this is constant kind of internal dialogue with myself on whether or not it's something that needs to be disclosed at any given appointment. Um, honestly, the farther along I get in transition, the more I lean towards, um, I'm happy to be completely out and open and like fighting the good queer fight in my personal life, you know, and even my public life. But when I go to access healthcare, it doesn't seem to, it's not something that's important to me to disclose anymore. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but it's definitely been a trajectory for me as I transition on how much I disclose. Yeah. So I guess that's, um, I just, I'm just thinking about like the elderly LGBTQ community who may be accessing healthcare 
for the first time, you know, they might have avoided healthcare their entire life because they weren't in a space where it was safe. Or in your circumstance, you've talked about how um, in Indianapolis, there's not really a lot of areas that um, are open, accepting and welcoming, or if they say that they are, they're not really behind the behind the scenes. Um, so for those folks who are um, entering end of life care, and this might be their first circumstance doing that, um, and say they enter into this circumstance where they're asked their pronouns, they're asked their sexual identity right off the bat, um, and that might become a little startling to them, um, and they might not feel comfortable, you know, airing airing all of that stuff. Um, do you think that there's a level of um, elderly folks who will just go in blindly not disclosing that information, and then it ends up to, you know whether or not it's their family that's not around able to make help make decisions and with their advanced care planning and all of that situation um could you talk a little bit about how like families the the isolation that comes with those elderly folks so i mean i think there's certainly going to be individuals who enter end-of-life care who don't disclose being lgbtq and i would say that's probably more likely to be prevalent um, with our older generations, because if you look at the history of the LGBTQ rights movement, you know it's a it's a relatively new, at least in the United States, um, phenomenon. You know, Stonewall. We just celebrated 50 years of Stonewall, so there are plenty of um, LGBTQ elders who um, grew up in you know during the Lavender Scare era, you know, where people were um, thrown out of government jobs and the military um, for being LGBTQ. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, that we do know with our elderly uh, LGBTQ population is that they may be less likely to have had, you know, biological children or adopted children um, just because of the norms of the times in which they grew up and, you know, laws that prevented um, LGBTQ people from adopting um, and, you know, not having the advances and things like in vitro and, you know, sperm donation and things like that. So those elderly adults might be more likely to be you know, not have the traditional kind of support system that we're used to seeing for our, our end-of-life um, individuals. So people relying on um, children, grandchildren, things like that might not be, you know, something that we necessarily see with this population. We may also see um, extended family, not necessarily in the picture. So, you know, siblings, nieces, nephews, things like that, depending on whether or not that person has been out to their family and how their family reacted. Um, and so it's gonna be very individual, you know, individualized and whether or not there's any family of origin um, involved in care. Um, and that does, you know, lead to loneliness in this population, but we're also incredibly resilient and we do build our own communities. Um, and there are lots of us out there intentionally trying to build intergenerational communities, um, specifically so that we can care for our LGBTQ elders who may not have anybody else. Um, so I think it's just the same as kind of any other intake assessment that you might do with end of life care is asking you know, your patient who's family to you um, and making sure that your language is very kind of inclusive and broad like that because um, who is family to one person might not you know, fit the definition of somebody else's family, but Really, what you what you're asking is who's important to you, who's going to be involved in your care, who's your support system, and so asking those questions in very broad language that shows that you're open to, I guess, quote unquote, non-traditional answers. Um, maybe a way to build a relationship with a patient that posits you as like somebody who might be safe to come out to or to be open with. So 
how do you, as a, as a healthcare provider, um, how do you present these questions in this safe space without seeming as though you're digging for information or you're trying to pull stuff out and, and be intrusive? Um, I think it helps if these things are standardized on your forms. So if you're not trying to like eyeball somebody and say, oh yeah, that's, that's somebody who's gay. Um, and I'm going to ask these specific questions because I've clocked you. Um, I think that makes it come more naturally from you so that you don't feel awkward asking those questions because you had practiced doing it lots of times with people who were all across the spectrum. Um, and that your patients can see that this is part of a standard set of questions. Right? You're running down your checklist. Okay, tell me who's your support system. Tell me, you know, how you identify your gender. How, tell me, you know, what's your sexual orientation. Um, and if they choose not to disclose, that's fine. Check the boxes that, you know, chose not to disclose and move on and don't make a big deal out of it. If you show that you're kind of open to those things um, and that you are coming at this in a non-judgmental way, your patients may not be willing to disclose to you at first, but as you build a relationship, they may be more likely. I'm sure we've all had relationships with patients where they're a little standoffish and guarded when we first get to know them, but as we spend more and more time with them, they start to talk more and more about their lives and we get to know things about them that we would never have guessed. Um, and I think that's the same here. So Alex, the significance advance of advanced care planning in all of, of care as far as end of life care, um, can you share with us just some perspectives um, with advanced care planning within this community, the importance of that? Sure. Well, I mean, I'm sure as nurses, you know, we all push advanced care planning and I'm sure we're all much better at pushing our patients to do it than actually doing it ourselves. Um, but um, I think as important as that is for the general population with this population, it's perhaps maybe even more important. We know that, you know, it's been about five years since the Supreme Court ruling that legalized um, same-sex marriage, but that doesn't necessarily encompass all of our patients, doesn't necessarily give them um, all of the same opportunities that perhaps uh, a heterosexual monogamous individual might have. Um, and so I think it's important to have these discussions before we get to the end of life you know, experience because not only may our patients be in relationship structures that we didn't necessarily uh, imagine when um, we were you know, fighting for same-sex marriage, but um, they may also have you know, divisiveness within between their chosen family and their family of origin. And so we've seen lots of instances of um, cases where prior to uh, the Supreme Court ruling, especially, two individuals who um, had been in a relationship for years or decades, um, but not you know, legally viewed as married um, by the government, you know, in, end up in a situation where one of them becomes seriously or critically ill or passes away and the family of origin um, who may or may not be, you know, estranged from that individual comes in and shuts out the partner um, and keeps them from, you know, having access to the patient's bedside or keeps them from, you know, being involved in funeral planning and things like that. Um, I would like to say that like for most people that problem went away um, with the Supreme Court ruling in the United States, but 
Um, also, I can point to, you know, um, story of acquaintances uh, just a little over a year ago who had been together for seven years. And um, when one became very ill um, and was in the hospital, the family shut out his partner um, and refused to let him visit and refused to let him be at the bedside while his partner died and then excluded him from the funeral. Um, and so this is not something that's gone away, you know, with the Supreme Court ruling. Um, the other thing to kind of keep in mind, especially for some of us in maybe more non-traditional relationship structures is that, um, well, like for example, if I were to get sick and end up in the hospital, um, I'm not legally married to any of my partners, but I want all three of them to be involved in my care and at my bedside. Um, and so the only way to make sure that that happens is by doing my advanced care planning. Um, and so otherwise, because I'm not you know, legally married in the state of Indiana, my parents would be the ones making those decisions. Um, and they're not necessarily the ones who know what I would want. And so without that documentation, um, my partners could legally be shut out of being at my bedside um, and also would have you know, no legal recourse um, for custody of any of our minor children um, without that documentation. So Alex, if one of your patients or friends or colleagues were to ask you, how can I get information about, you know, advanced care planning? Is there a resource that I could go to that would help recognize my needs? Is there resources out there? Are there resources? To my knowledge, there are not any formal resources out there that are really geared towards the LGBTQ community. If there are, it would probably be um, on SAGE's website. So SAGE's service and as services and advocacy for LGBTQ elders. Um, and so they're an organization based in New York that primarily caters to um, older LGBTQ adults. And so they also run the, I want to say the National Resource Center on LGBT Aging as well. So those are some places to start for resources. Um, I know that at, a conf um, at one of our recent annual assemblies, there was um, a, um, I want to say a poster from our um, AAHPM counterpart in the LGBTQ special interest group about doing a um, advanced care planning document for a uh, transgender woman um, that included things like um, maintaining um, feminine appearance and maintaining, you know, um, hormone replacement therapy and, you know, making sure that even though, you know, she may not have been able to have her name legally changed, that this was, you know, she wanted to not be, um, not have her legal name used on her headstone and things like that. Um, and those are things that a lot of us who are trans do have in our advanced care planning documents. So it's things like, you know, even if I can't make my own decisions, don't stop my testosterone. Um, or, you know, even if I haven't legally changed my name, I don't want to be you know, buried or remembered or have my obituary published under my dead name. Um, you know, things like that are kind of important. And I don't know that anybody's done a template out there yet, but it's certainly something that there's a need for. And we'll have some resource accesses that you had mentioned here um, posted on, on the website to coincide with our podcast today. So for any of our listeners out there that would like to, to access that as well, we can um, provide links to those those particular resources that have become available and i believe taylor you've started putting some things up on the hpna website um that's a good starting resource as well 
I had pulled um, a couple of uh, end of life and elder resources from the presentation that you had done. So um, I can thank you for all, for a lot of those. Um, so you you had mentioned um, just kind of uh, just the the folks who are transitioning in the community um, having to enter into end of life care and maybe some of their wishes or their wishes not being um, not being met or them you know, whoever's making the decisions, stopping their, their hormone therapy and all of those situations. Um, is there, I know that I could, I can only imagine going into end of life care and for your own personal transition saying, oh, you know, I never had the opportunity to get surgery or I never had the opportunity to, to start testosterone or hormone repair replacement therapy. Um, how does somebody deal with that type of issue along with at the end of life care like both of those together i'm sure can can be super super heavy <laughs> it's not something that i've necessarily experienced in providing care to patients at the end of life but i mean i'm sure that hospice and palliative care providers have all experienced caring for a patient who didn't get to do something big in their life that they really wanted for themselves right they didn't get to um I don't know, meet a goal or really, you know, be able to experience life to the fullest, the, the way that they would have wanted before they died. Um, and so I can imagine this might be something similar. Um, you know, I'm not sure necessarily that there are ways, you know, if somebody is not medically stable to get them, you know, surgical transition, but there may be ways to help them explore their gender identity and help them, you know, help them present it the way that they would want to. Um, even though, um, even though you know, surgery is kind of a, a big thing that a lot of trans people have as a goal, not all trans people do have surgery as a goal and it's certainly not the only way to transition. And so I wonder you know, if, you're, if you're caring for a patient at the end of life who is you know, experiencing some grief over not being able to medically transition, surgically transition, are there opportunities to explore other ways to transition? Um, that may not get them quite where they would like to be, but as a kind of a step in that direction. So things like socially transitioning is very easy. Um, it's asking people to call you the name that feels right for you. It's asking people to refer to you with the pronouns that feel good to you. Um, that's something that you can do for your patient without any intervention. You can respect your patient's wishes in that way. Socially transitioning can be things like um, coming out to your family and friends. You can help your patient do that if that's something they want to do. It can be buying clothes that match the gender presentation that you want. One of the first ways that I socially transitioned was by going to a really terrible like men's warehouse and and buying some really poorly fitting suits. Uh, <laughs> um, so is there a way? Um, and people, men's warehouse very nice, by the way. I'm not digging against men's warehouse, but those were not well fitted suits that I ended up buying. Um, but you know, are there ways that you can support your patient like that? Can we work on legally transitioning? Some states it's pretty easy to change your name. Some states it's a little bit harder, um, and it can also vary kind of where in a state you live, um, depending on whether it's you know what type of um, judges kind of live in your area. But is there a way that you can help your patient change their name and change their gender marker so that they're legally recognized the way they want to be? Um, so seeing what your patient's goals are and how you can get them as close to those as possible, I think is a good way to um, respect your patient and help them through that grieving process. 
So, Alex, you brought up the term social transition, medical transition, surgical transition, the opportunities that you presented to to us as to how you can help patients at end of life that may be experiencing, you know, the not having met their goal or not having met their their dream ha have been excellent. And um, so thanks for giving us that, that perspective. I want to kind of take us back to the eradicating health disparities within the community, within the LBGTQ plus community. How do you see it? How do you see it as it should be, Alex? Um, well, in an ideal world, we would have um, healthcare worker population that that matched our patient population. You know, right now we are an overwhelmingly um, healthcare, particularly nursing, overwhelmingly white, cisgender, heterosexual females. Um, and if we want our disparities to decrease, then one of the places we have to start is by making sure that the people who take care of patients reflect our patients. Um, somebody's not going. Somebody's going to feel more comfortable accessing care from somebody from a healthcare provider who you know is like them, so who can relate to them. Um, that's one way to start. The other other things that we have to do to eliminate disparities, though, um, are really even you know deeper rooted than that. We talk about um, you know issues of white supremacy, of heteropatriarchy, all of those things that this country is founded on, um, and that build our institutions like the healthcare institution are things that contribute to health disparities, not only for LGBTQ patients, but for all underrepresented minorities, particularly. Um, black and brown people. So until we really are committed to getting rid of those foundational white supremacist, heteropatriarchal notions that undergird all of healthcare in this country, we're not going to see health disparities eliminated. Um, the way to start is by really paying attention and really critically examining these things and saying, you know, how do the structures and the institutions that we all work in work to oppress our patients, and especially those who are already marginalized by other institutions? Um, and until we start really doing that critical work, it's not going to change. One of the ways that we do that is by working on our pipeline of healthcare professionals, because we need to bring more voices to the table. We need to, well, we need to destroy the table altogether, um, but we need to build a new table, but we need to build that new table by prioritizing the voices of those who have been marginalized. Do you see hope for that, Alex? Um, that's a good question. I, well, without hope, why are we here? Um, why are we trying to do this work if there's no hope for it changing? So I have to see hope. Um, I can see that things have changed for my community in my lifetime, and I can see where they can get better. Um, I cannot see where there's going to be everlasting or long-lasting, you know, sy systemic, systematic change at all levels with the way things currently operate. There has to be a massive overhaul of 
the way that we do healthcare in this country and the way that we take care of people in this country, not only uh, from a healthcare perspective, but from a holistic perspective, the way that we support our, our, our people who, you know, in our community, um, all of those things have to change. And I have to, I have to have hope that those things can change um, because otherwise it seems very desperate. Um, and so I guess the short answer to that is yes, but I also see what a mountain it is. So Taylor, what are your thoughts about that question? I'm kind of a sidestep from the healthcare industry just because, you know, I do work for HPNA, but I come from like a filmmaking background where, you know, media is, has a mountain to climb as well. Um, they're slowly, you know, chopping away from that mountain. And I, I can only hope that that type of equality is, is <laughs> in a larger scale is going to get better. So I do have hope that, you know, I, I have hope that when I eventually end up looking for healthcare, that it's going to be accepting, you know, I moved out to California, which is a very different vibe from, from the East coast, from Indiana, from, I mean, even Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, they're getting there, but, um, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, it was, it was very, there wasn't a lot of hope. Um, and then moving out to California is a very different, a different boat. So I, I hope that the folks that aren't, aren't in these spaces that are as progressive can, can see that hope. And I think it's something that, you know, our generation, um, moving forward is generally, you know, trying to do their best. And I'm hoping that our generation's really going to make big changes in healthcare, in media, in the news and everything. Um, I mean, you can see that with all the protests going on, um, our generation cares. Um, and I think that they, if they're at the helm of the ship, Hopefully, we've got a long way to go. Like Alex, you're one hundred percent, one hundred percent right. Like we've got more than, more than a mountain um, to go. But I think, you know, like he said, if we don't have hope, why are we here? You know. Well, my hope is that we give each other grace, and that we give each other um, courage to be able to have the hard conversations and to ask the hard questions and to be able to stand by and support um, awareness. You know self-reflection like Alex you started out with in the very beginning when the, the first question that I asked you you know you, that was you know you got to start inside and reflect from there and um, so it's it's just it's being able to take take passion and put that passion to where we can hopefully provide better care for our patients and ourselves so, Alex, is there a story that you have of caring for a patient or teaching a, a group of students or something that you, you would like to share with us that, that really held true to you for, for hope, for the opportunity? You know, I think that when I decided that this was going to be my focus, you know, I knew when I started my PhD that it was going to be end-of-life care, um, hadn't done a lot of introspection to really identify my place in the LGBT community at that point. And so didn't really know where I was going to be, but had kind of a light bulb moment. Where I was like, this is, this is where I need to need to work on fixing things, you know, in, in my community. Um, and I thought, well, there's no way anybody's, I'm, this is going to be me doing this, this alone. Right. So I guess I'm going to prepare for a very long, lonely career of fighting, you know, fighting to get anybody to take this seriously. 
Um, and so there's not, you know, one story that I can point to that says, you know, this is this is the thing that gives me hope, but it's that um, when I took it to my PhD advisor um, and I went to the Catholic University of America, so I fully expected to be shut down on that one. Um, and she was all for it and, you know, backed me up and said, let's like do it. This is important. Um, and then I um, saw Kim Aquaviva's book and I emailed her and she said, let's have a phone call. And then next thing I knew she was on my dissertation committee. Um, and, you know, then HPNA um, wanted to start the special interest group and we did that. And then y'all invited me out to do leadership connection. And then I've been invited to speak at hospice groups, you know, at different parts of the country. All of those things collectively, I think, give me some hope that you know, we can move things in the right direction for LGBTQ healthcare. There's a long way to go. Um, and there are certainly plenty of people who think that we don't deserve equal access to care. Um, but the fact that any of these organizations are letting me come talk about it and stand up on my soapbox for one to two hours um, is, is a positive in my book. And so I'm just going to kind of keep shouting this and yelling at people as much as I can. And um, hopefully at least enough, enough people listen and are willing to take my message and say, I'm going to learn about this and educate myself so that the next time that I have an LGBTQ patient in my practice, I can be a little more informed, um, a little less ignorant about their needs um, and maybe start to move the needle in the right direction for them. Well, with that, it's a beautiful close to a very, very, very informed podcast today, Alex. I can't thank you enough for continuing to 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 share with us and to be out there and to get this message across a lot of different boundaries. Um, and Taylor, sharing your insight as well to today's podcast is really appreciated. What we'll have for you available to y'all is the uh, we'll have a resource page linked to HPNA's podcast corner for additional information. And Alex, with that, is there any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners today as we close it out? Put me on the spot. Um, thank you. I appreciate you all, uh, you and Taylor, taking the time to have me here. Um, encourage anybody who has not, you know, um, is looking to be more expansive, you know, in this area. Um, and doesn't know where to start to read Kim Aquaviva's book on LGBTQ inclusive hospice and palliative care. It's a pretty easy read. Um, and I think she gives you some good concrete um, steps to get started and move in the right direction. Well, we look forward to continuing the education, continuing the discussion. And thank you again, Alex, so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Yeah, thank you, Alex. So that concludes today's podcast. And thank y'all for listening. Mm-hmm.